You know, I started reading scrapbooking magazines and I saw that you could get published in a magazine and I thought, well, I want to get published in a magazine. So I started to submit my layouts and I got rejected right away time and time again. And that made me mad. So I was like, no way I am going to do this. So then I set out on a campaign to figure out why my work wasn't as good as what was in the magazines. And that started me down a long road of like design elements and principles. Welcome to Show Up or Shut Up with Wendy Solganic, also known as Willa.Wanders on Instagram. This podcast features real and raw conversation about the lives of prolific makers, what is really happening behind all of those gorgeous photos of art on Instagram, how we came to be prolific makers, what makes us consistently show up, and the very real challenges that we all face. This episode of Show Up or Shut Up is brought to you by my online course, the Willa Journals course. Learn everything you need to know to make one-of-a-kind, bespoke, mixed-media mashup journals. And by the Bookmaker Collective. Discover your bookmaker confidence as you learn new bookmaking techniques or reimagine old ones while creating and constructing artisan books from start to finish during online weekend-long live workshop experiences. This week on Show Up or Shut Up, I'm talking to Julie Fafan Balzer. Julie is an artist living and working outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Her business, Balzer Designs, is focused on helping others be more creative with more confidence. Julie believes that curiosity is the key to creativity, and she shares this philosophy in her art workshops, during creative coaching sessions, and across social media. You can find Julie on Instagram at Balzer Designs. Balzer. Hey, how are you? I'm tired. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it only like five o'clock where you are? No, I'm in Cleveland. Oh, I don't know why I thought you were on the West Coast. Because Cleveland seems so far away yeah. from the East Coast. Yeah, it must you've be. only ever lived on the East Coast. <laughs> it must be. <laughs> Scary. You're in Boston, right? I am. Oh. And I've been to Cleveland many times. Oh, right. Okay. I forgot about that. So I'm aware that Cleveland is close. And yet somehow I think, you know, I think of Ohio as the Midwest, but it's really the East Coast, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast and I definitely thought that Cleveland was a million miles away. <laughs> Well, how do you feel about it now, though? How long have you been in Cleveland? I have been here for 20 years. Oh, so you love it. I love it. I am like a pig and shit. I (laughs) I think it's the bomb. I just, I just, I totally love it. 
Um, it's like living in one of these old quaint towns outside of like Boston or New York or, or Washington, D.C., only the houses they give you. Like if you if you agree to live in Cleveland, they give you the house for free. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I do remember. Um, I don't know if you know Jenny from Craft Test Dummies. No, I never even heard of that. So she ran a site for, I think she still runs it for a really long time. And she lived in Cleveland forever. And she lived in this beautiful old Victorian home. And then her husband got a job in New York. And they had to downsize from this, like, you know, tons and tons of square feet house into a new And I just remember the, you know, in the end, they couldn't hack it. They ended up moving out to Jersey, I think, just because they were like, we're used to space can't do yeah, it yeah there's just a lot of available space here and I'm sure you you would feel the same way because I know you lived in New York for a long time but when you're crafty oh yeah you need the space when I look at those people with the small space. houses and like the buses converted into homes I'm like that's fine as long as you don't have a hobby that involves hoarding yes exactly exactly so all right I have lots of things that I want to talk about with you First of all, I think everybody knows who you are. And just in case they don't, could you let us know how epic your career in mixed media <laughs> art has been? And like well, when did it start? Because you're you're like you're a queen goddess of mixed media. Well, you are very sweet and way too kind. I would say, you know, my I officially started this as like a job job instead of a fun hobby sometime around like 2012. Well, which, when was, I, I even want to know, like, when did it start as like, huh, that looks like fun. I'd like to try my hand at that. You know, I have always been like enjoyed crafty things but like so many of the students who come to me and people across the earth I always thought that I wasn't an artist because I couldn't like draw a horse just by looking at it and immediately understanding how to draw it you know in a realistic form and so I think it was just this thing that got tucked away and when I was uh you know little my mother always says that she was able to entertain me with you know craft projects it was the number one thing and those are always the happiest things that I remember doing is making stuff with my hands but you know like most people I went off to college and I decided that I was going to you know do something else and be something else. But I always sort of had this craft hobby and it extended to the fact that I remember in college, I used to bring my cross stitching to lectures with me <laughs> so that I find I focus better if yes. I have a hand project. Yes. And I can honestly tell you that I can look at the cross stitching from college and I can hear the lecture that I was listening to. That is so funny. And Where did you yeah. go to college? I went to Brown, which is in Providence. Shut up. My brother went there. Okay. My brother too. What? Okay. What, what year did you go there? What years were you there? I was there from 94 to 98. Okay. So you're just a little younger than me. Okay. And what was your major? Uh, I majored in the very practical and always useful theater. <laughs> 
I don't know. Maybe there's practicality in that. I mean, to be fair, for a long time out of college, I was the only person I knew who was actually using my degree. After graduation, I moved to New York and I worked in the theater for a decade or so. But it is one of those things that I always look back and I laugh. Uh, I met up with a friend of mine who uh, actually married someone who I went to school with. She didn't go to school with me, but I've become closer to her than I have to him. And uh, she mentioned to me uh, that, you know, her husband has this very useful degree in theater. And I was like, oh, you've forgotten. I have that same incredibly useful degree. So you did end up kind of putting it to use because you are a performer. I guess so. I mean, I think here's the thing, which is Brown is more of an intellectual institution than a practical one, shall we say. And so I think that a lot of uh, my education in theater was really more about like theater history and understanding like, you know, uh, the way that things, I kind of put it to people this way, which is like I majored in art, art history, but not actually in like painting. So that would be like, I basically, oh, a theater degree from Brown oh. is much more about like, you could go into a graduate program to teach theater and the extracurricular part of it is like you're in plays and you do stuff like that. So the focus is just not gotcha. on sort of those aspects okay. of it. You could have written a book or about exactly. Theater. Well, you I was actually okay. a terrible student, so I couldn't have written a book unless it said a lot of <laughs> la 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 in it. Okay, I think that's a BS line. You're a terrible student because <laughs> everyone knows in the United States there's no harder school to get into. Ex, you know, other than Brown, it's like notorious for being impossible <laughs> to get into, except for one other school that you've probably never heard of called Deep Springs College. I have never heard of that. Check it out online. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to find out what that is. They only take like 10 kids a year and it's in the desert and it's really yeah. interesting. So anyway, okay. But all right. So you go to Brown, you have this theater degree yeah you end up in new york city yeah. working in theater and are you crafting the whole time yeah so i have kind of like a crafty hobby and what i find is i end up you know when you're when you work in the theater you work really weird hours you know and a lot of it is night times and so you kind of have your days free and so I found that I was able to connect uh, with other people who liked to do this weird thing called scrapbooking, which a lot of people oh, didn't really. Yeah. And, and I think it's a logical way to start because you start thinking about like memories and you start thinking about like how you want to do something. And then it's like it's the gateway drug into the, you know, hoarding disease that is mixed media <laughs> art. And so, you know, I also found that I could make connections with all kinds of people, which in a city like New York, you know, really it's like the way to make connections is pretty much through things like drinking, partying, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is not my, not my interests personally. Um, so this was a great way to do it. And I, there was a woman who was the office manager of a huge office in Chelsea, um, which is a neighborhood in New York. And she that her bosses would totally let all these scrapbookers come. And like on Fridays, we would descend on her office at like five o'clock, take over like the conference areas of the office with all these women from all over New York City scrapbooking. And we would stay until like four or five in the morning. <gasps> there are times I saw the sun come up before we left. I mean, it was like, I mean, let me so tell you about my crazy 20s, you guys. I was scrapbooking in an office. So this is so fascinating. So <laughs> you were doing it in New York. Yes. 
I was doing it in Los Angeles mm-hmm. at the same exact time. And our paths took us in very different directions, but yeah. it started with the scrapbooking. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I definitely kind of always have wondered, especially like when you talk about scrapbooking, when you're saying that you did scrapbooking in New York City, I'm very curious because New York is a very sophisticated city. And even today, when I post my photos of my mixed media art on Instagram, this is like a true confession moment. I often think, do my sophisticated college friends who still live on the East Coast look at these pictures that I post on Instagram and think to themselves, what? What kind of mess is Wendy making over there in Cleveland? And it just, I'm just shocked that you're telling me that in New York City in the late 90s, scrapbooking was like raging. Yeah, I mean, raging might be overstating it, but there definitely was a crowd I mean, of people you were who were interested. Up till five in the four in the morning. Yeah, we had a really good time. I mean, here's the thing, which is a, I mean, I think your work is beautiful and sophisticated or not. I think lots of people love what you post. But the other thing I would say is I think New York, like so many places and so many um, ideas that we have about other people and, you know, their stories, New York is, can be sophisticated. There can be, you know, pockets where it is, but in many ways, people are people and, a lot of New York is not particularly sophisticated. There are plenty of people in New York who have never left New York City, who've never even left their borough, you know, who've never left Brooklyn, who've never left Queens. And I think that we believe a little too much like the movie version of it. And I actually think this kind of relates a little bit to what interests me about art, which is I think art is always an opportunity to really get to know someone, even if they're not doing something sort of as so spot on as scrapbooking their story. But it's like you can't, whatever you make is personal to sort of who you are. And I think a lot of times, you know, when you see somebody's art, you get a better sense of who they are. And so that's why I think, you know, you are who you are, whether you whether you live in New York or Cleveland or Paris or whatever. And I think that comes through the stuff that you make. I mean, you have a very sophisticated palette, Wendy, and the way that you pull together disparate items, I, I would always call sophisticated. That is very kind of you. Very. Um... <laughs> Sometimes I look at it and it just seems like I really like it, but I I just wonder like, does this look like you know a mess to to other people? But I love the mess. I have actually grown to adore the mess and crave the mess recently. Yeah, I think we all take for granted the things that are easy for us or instinctive or natural to us. Do you know what I mean? And so we often, particularly as women, downplay it because it seems like well, everybody can do this, right? And it isn't, I think, until you start teaching, until you start going out there and having to explain your thought process and why you're doing stuff that you realize maybe it isn't totally instinctive for everyone. And maybe what you do actually is really, really special. Oh, that's very kind. All right. So back to New York. So you're in this office building and you're Mm -hmm. scrapbooking till late (laughs) at night, but you're working in theater. So you've got a quote unquote day job. And then what happens? 
I do. So at the time I was married and my ex-husband was an attorney. And so he was supporting us and we were, uh, you know, when I sort of crossed over the threshold into my thirties, we were discussing whether or not we should have children. And it was going to be really hard with the whole, um, you know, working nights and weekends and all these weird things. So, you know, he was like, well, you have this art hobby. Why don't you see if you can turn that into a business? And so I started thinking about how to pursue that. And sort of as that happened, our marriage fell apart. I don't think that (laughs) two things had anything to do with each other. I think it was coincidental, Uh, you know, and then I, once we got divorced, I I really had to make it a business because I really had to pay my bills and New York City rent ain't cheap. Wow. That is scary, actually to go from not having it be a business to suddenly you need to support yourself on an art business. Yeah, it was really scary. I think it is still scary now. And I think, you know, I still remember talking to a friend of mine who was divorced. I think she got divorced before I even got married. And I remember her talking about how hard it was, um, you know, to be the breadwinner and to do all this stuff. And and I think as I, the, I think I sort of nodded at her and made sympathetic noises and sort of didn't really get it the same way that I think like I would see my friends who had children and I would listen to their stories and hold their children and let them, you know, uh, unload or complain about what they needed to. And I would not sort of nod sympathetically, but I don't think I really got it until I had children. And I do think that there is nothing that lights a fire under your entrepreneurial butt so much as fear. (laughs) I totally agree. You know, fear is a powerful motivator. It's not always the best motivator, but it definitely kicked me into high gear, into hustle mode. Yeah. So, I mean, several, several things sort of came together for me. And this is always the funny thing, uh, you know, when I talk to um, other people who email me or clients or whatever about when they say like, well, how do I do it? And the answer is there isn't really a path, right? And you know this too, Wendy, everybody has their own path. And so I think of a, any creative person's uh, income stream is usually like a, a well-balanced stock portfolio. It's it's many different things. It's not just one thing. Um, and that's so that when your income stream in particular dries up, you still have something else. It's like that old idea of your um, freelance income stream should always be like a table and have four legs because when it gets to three, you're still standing. But if it gets to two, you might be in trouble and you definitely never want to have a table with one leg. So smart. it is. And I think it's important. So for me, it's like I made money off of teaching classes in person. I made money off of teaching classes online. I made money by working for various companies and doing samples. I made money by doing demos at trade shows. I made money by designing some products and getting a royalty. I made money by writing articles for magazines. I made money, you know, it was like anytime, anywhere, however I could do it, I was looking to make it. And, you know, we're certainly not talking about the big bucks. But what happened is over time, I developed a better sense of what was a good fit for me, what I really enjoyed doing. And I developed relationships with different companies, uh, manufacturers, organizations, you know, and even relationships with there are students who have been with me, you know, for a decade, which is amazing. 
So was it driven by, I guess really what I'm asking you is mm-hmm. what about and what about your experience with these materials kind of drove you to a place where you were like, I could see myself coming up with new not been taught before and new products that have not been out there before myself like engaging with this in a way because it's one thing to have a shit ton of fun sitting around a table with a bunch of friends crafting and it's a whole nother thing to move into a totally different way of approaching it which is to develop something new and I'm trying to attract an audience and all of those things do you think it was just kind of natural like did it happen where Um, it was just like this is who I I am I think it's a sort of a bunch of random things that happened you know I started reading scrapbooking magazines and I saw that you could get published in a magazine and I thought well I want to get published in a magazine. So I started to submit my layouts and I got rejected right away time and time again. And that made me mad. So I was like, no way I am going to do this. So then I set out on campaign to figure out why my work wasn't as good as what was in the magazines. And that started me down a long road of like design elements and principles, which is really the basis of, you know, the design boot camp that I teach today and so much of the work that I've done. And I started to like really want to teach myself, you know, why does this design work and that one doesn't? Why do these colors work and this one doesn't? I bought a color wheel, I started doing all this stuff. And then I got my first publication and I learned something really valuable there, which is not only had I improved my work, but also my first publication was in a magazine called Somerset Memories, which was like the artsy scrapbooking magazine. And it was a it was a sort of good lesson to me. The first of many times I had to learn this lesson because I have a thick head and it had to keep getting drummed in was the idea that my style was not sort of the mainstream style and but that if I went off the beaten path to people who were in a sort of a more artsy kind of space then they were very interested in what I was doing and that that was okay and so I started getting published really regularly in Somerset Memories and then I started getting published in some of the mainstream regular magazines and then uh, because I got published in a book this is my most hilarious story to date um, I the author of the book had been asked to go and represent a pen company, Sakura of America, who you may know makes like the Pigma Micron pens, yep. the Koi coloring brushes and all that stuff on a TV show, but she couldn't go. And so she was like, is anybody uh, who, any of the contributors to this book on doodling, do any of you want, you know, to do this? And so I was like, I mean, I want to, I have a background in theater. I could do that. Right. Um, And in fact, I had been on a TV show when I was a kid. And so I had like an audition basically on the phone with the marketing people from this company. And they were like, fine, we'll send you. They put me on an airplane to Cleveland um, to go film this show. And after I recorded my little bit, the uh, producer came back and she said, who are you? And I was like, oh, I'm Julie. I was just on camera. Did I, you know, is is everything okay? And she was like, no, who are you? What have you done? And I was like, oh, I'm no one. (laughs) And I have done nothing. And she was like, I want you. 
And so she started putting me as a guest on a bunch of her shows and it eventually led to me hosting a show uh, called Scrapbook Memories for her and then uh, Scrapbook Soup and then uh, Make It Artsy. And that is all dumb luck. I happen to have lucked into two things that I don't think uh, maybe they're teachable. I don't know. One is which I, my personality comes through the camera. You know, some people it does, some people it doesn't. And I think that that's just luck. That's not skill. And the second thing is I have had the ability, and I think it's why I'm a good teacher, to break down something very complicated and explain it in easy steps that feel very doable to people. And those two things combined are a great combination for how-to TV for obvious reasons. And so that's just one example of the fact that like, so many things that come in life are based on random occurrences, raising your hand for something, you know, and just being ready when the opportunity comes. From my theater days, I'll tell you, there's a quote I've always loved from Viola Spolin, who was an um, improv uh, expert. And she said, you know, improvisation is not random, right? So she said, improv is the moment when planning and opportunity meet. And I think like that is the thing that I tell people too, sort of to harken back to our earlier conversation, which is if if Miley Cyrus, you know, posted about you and a million people tapped on your name because she posted about you, would you have the content to make your account sticky? Meaning would people want to subscribe, come back and stay again? And that is the planning part of it. You can do all the prep work so that when the opportunity comes, you know, you're ready for it. I remember back in my scrapbooking days that there was a woman who said that you should have this book of 10. This was 10 unpublished layouts that are publication ready at any time. So if you got a call from an editor or anybody else that said like, hey, we're looking for Thanksgiving layouts with, you know, multicultural families, like who's got one that you would be able to go to your book of 10, do you know what I mean? And pull something out that would work. And so I think while I don't have like a publishing mind like that right now, I do still think all the time of it's kind of like dressing for the job you want. What is it that I want? What is it that I hope people will see? What is it, you know, and I, and I think a lot about being consistent and all that kind of stuff. And then I hope that over time, you know, I will be, I am building a reputation for myself as being, you know, uh, smart, kind, you know, a good teacher, like all those kinds of things and that my peeps will find me. It's so fascinating because with that that was like a business you know place on my own I'm always thinking of what could I teach like what original content mm-hmm. in a book so I'm always thinking if someone approaches me and says do you want to be part of you know make creative or life book or all of these you know different year-long programs which they do and some I say yes to and some I say no to, but I'm, I'm always thinking like, do I have books that I haven't, I have things film. Now it's not always so easy, like on the spot when someone says, okay, now I need content from you. It's content that's fresh and never been. So that's the kind of thing that I'm always 
of a version of your book of 10. Yeah. I have I to think it's something unique and exciting up my sleeve. Agreed. Which is not the easiest thing in the world to do. It's not. But if it were, then we wouldn't have jobs. That's true. <laughs> I'm always, you know, when the magic strikes, the magic strikes. And I can't, you know, I, I, I give that up. It's like, you know, day and make stuff. And sometimes something magic. And, and lots of times it doesn't. And all I can but hope that I can eventually have maybe not 10 things up my sleeve, but maybe two time. <laughs> you know, Anne Bogart is an uh, avant-garde director. I, a lot of the things, by the way, that I talk about come from my uh, theatrical days just because that's a lot where my brain is often. Um, but anyway, she's a theatrical, an avant-garde theatrical director. And I once went to a talk that she gave and she says something that has stayed with me all these years, which is she said uh, for her company, which had the luxury of being privately funded so they weren't worried about making their money at the box office. Um, they think that they can either do 10 perfectly fine pieces of work, okay? Or they can do one truly spectacular, mind-blowing, amazing piece of work and nine totally crappy disasters. Because if you're just want to be good, you can kind of always do it. But if you really want to be brilliant, if you really want to like go for something people have never seen, if you really want to do something beyond beyond, you can really only say that one out of 10 is going to hit and the ones that don't are going to be pretty terrible. And I've always kept that in mind um, because I always thought, I think everybody's different and some people would be more comfortable doing 10 things that are good, you know, but I always, I want that great. I want that amazing. And so I feel like I've gotten very comfortable in my practice of showing up and sucking, <laughs> of showing up and being terrible, of showing up and failing, because I know that if I can get nine of those out of the way, there's going to be one that is so good that I can't even stand it. And so I think it has really changed a lot of what like failure or not making pretty things or whatever you want to call it, you know, means to me, because now they just seem like things that I have to get out of the way to get to the good stuff. So I'm willing to do it and I'm happy to do it. That advice <laughs> because I definitely have been holding back on creating more courses that are, you know, courses where I'm going to be charging. Well, if I'm going to charge, this, I have to make sure that I hit it out of the park, that it's a home run, the way the Willow Journals course has been. I can't even believe it. The first course edited and uploaded a freaking park run so i'm always comparing everything now experience and i think that the advice that you gave me is totally the advice that i need to hear right now you content one out of is going to be like a complete home run, but I don't have to hold back thinking that everything needs to be a home run. Oh yeah. 
I think failure can be crippling, but success can be crippling too, because you keep thinking you have to hit that mark. And I think that's what's been going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like for all of us, no matter where you are in your art journey, no matter where you are in your art practice, the only thing that you need to focus on is getting your butt into your art space, your studio, your closet, wherever it is that you make stuff and doing that every day, even if it's just for 10 minutes, because it is the discipline of making that leads to all the results that you want. So it, you're such a, like an art business therapist. <laughs> no. So you, <laughs> how many things do I'm not aware of? So number one, during the time we've been talking, you business. So tell us about that. Idea. Yeah, that's been really fun for me. So, you know, I, um, I, I do some private coaching. Some people come for sort of art lessons, but more often people come with business issues. You know, I have a book proposal I've been wanting to write and I can't quite pull it together or, you know, uh, I want to grow my social media following and I'm not sure how to do that or I am interested in teaching and I don't even know where to begin, you know, kind of all the questions that we all have when we start and you're looking for someone to help you. And, and I think one of the reasons I've really enjoyed doing that besides the fact that it's actually a very selfish thing to do because helping other people, you know, reach out and get their dreams is kind of enormously rewarding. Um, but it's also just been so enjoyable for me to, to realize that I can teach people these skills, that I actually do have, you know, a decade of knowledge on how this all works behind me. And that's been wonderfully uh, enjoyable as well. And I also, I really like the intellectual puzzle of trying to figure out how to break things down for people so that they can really grab a hold of it, you know, and make it their own. And so what I like about um, coaching clients is that every client is different. So it's not like you're ever doing the same thing twice, even if a client comes with the same problem that somebody else had, because their particular problems are unique or their particular, you know, obstacles, their particular, you know, interests. And so it constantly actually feels creative. And I really like that. So I think in another life, a- I might have been a therapist. <laughs> is this just a private thing that you do where people reach out and you just provide like private coaching or is this a group thing is this a class you offer that's kind of what I wasn't quite oh no so this is a private thing that have a I have a section on my I'm actually very bad about advertising it but there's a section on my website about private coaching and just people come to me sometimes for you know one or two sessions sometimes for a couple you know months whatever it is to get through and deal with whatever problem it is they have and it's just one-on-one um I have uh actually been thinking about so I'm glad you said that because I was this is one of those like are people interested I don't know of doing like a group coaching thing on some of do this it. stuff but do a it's group so coaching you think so and people together yes because I think that there's so much power in groups especially when like there's so many things that I think to ask or think to even consider and let's say like you're modeling talking with with one person about a book deal but I may haven't even considered it or or honestly like somebody did offer me a book deal and I was like oh I can't really envision it but maybe if I saw you coaching someone else in a group coaching session it might be something 
that I understand better or that, you know, seems more desirable, mm. whatever it is, I would love to do something like that with a group. So That's I don't a good know idea. if there's anybody else out there, but you can reach out to Julian. Maybe she'll make it happen. <laughs> well, I will say, you know, I mentioned earlier, I teach the design boot camp, which is a live online class. So we meet on Zoom twice a week for, uh, you know, five weeks and talk about, you know, design principles and elements and sort of work on our personal style and stuff. And I will say, I've heard many times people do say, like, it makes such a big difference to hear other people's questions. And you learn so much from the people in the class as much as anything else. And it is one of the things that's been, I think, so hard about the pandemic, because there is something about those side conversations you have in a classroom, or the casual conversation you have with a stranger at the art supply store when you're trying to decide between two things or any of that stuff, that I think really is an opportunity for learning, because you just it's what you said, Wendy, you don't know what you don't know until someone else presents it. And I think, um, I think there are like uh, many things that I'm looking forward to, you know, as the pandemic hopefully is ebbing, but it's like, I, I, I want that human contact, those accidental questions, those, you know, moments where we just chat about stuff that doesn't seem important, but that ends up being so important. So, okay, keep me posted. Yes. <laughs> keep yes. me posted on that. That's really interesting. Okay, then I was going to mention again the design boot camp. So, mm-hmm. I had the good fortune of actually taking college level design when I was in my early 20s. And of all the classes I ever took in every subject through high school, college, law school, everything, that is the one class I shit you. Know. That changed the course of my life. Oh, that's awesome. Tell me more. So I took Design 101 after I graduated from law school at Santa Monica College in Santa Monica, California for $13 a credit. Because back then in California at a public institution, that was what they charged. (laughs) And I had a phenomenal experience think that it it just rode that knowledge all the way through like the stationary industry where I worked for 15 years and I continue to ride that knowledge through the experience that I'm having now on you know posting on Instagram and creating the art that I'm creating and you know you said something like like I have a sophistication level about the mixed media art that I create. And, and I know that it's appealing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that dumb. I, I understand like people definitely like it. And I, I definitely like in, I know that so much of why I'm able to create what I create is because of that design class that I took. And if I had just, you know, come off the street as, you know, Sally scrapbooker, because that's what I was. And I had never had that high level design course. It's not high level design 101. But what I mean is like a focused, concentrated design class. It just made a huge difference. That's what I'm trying to say. So I'm very pro you giving a class like that to mixed media artists who are about making art. I think it makes huge difference. Well, so can you tell is- us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Can you tell us I was more gonna say, about it? Yeah. I was going to say, like, the thing that I always tell people, which I think is really important, is the the stuff that's sort of fun in mixed media that attracts us first is stuff like the paints, the sprays, the colors, the textures. Like, we want to do all that stuff. And then very quickly, many of us, myself included, you get frustrated because you can't sort of either you make something great once, but you can never recreate it, or you can't quite figure out how to get things to come together the way they do for other people, you know, and you get stuck in this place. And that reason is because you're doing all of the, you're doing the makeup and the jewelry, but you forgot about a skeleton and a body, you know? Yeah. So it's, you've just got this big pile of makeup and jewelry and pretty clothes, but like there's nothing to put it on. And if you get into design elements and principles, then you really are getting your skeleton, your body, the structure is there so that you can play with all this dressing and have all this fun. And I agree with you that it's a lifelong skill. And I, so I always do a free webinar before I offer boot camp because I want people to sort of get a sense of what's in the class and what to expect and all that kind of stuff. And the number one thing I tell people is you do not have to take this class. And I will say this to all your listeners. You do not have to take this class. You can get a free education in this by checking out a book from your library and doing the exercises in the book by, you know, going uh, on YouTube. People have done tons of videos about these. So this is information that's absolutely readily out there for you. But what you gain, whether you study it in class with me or for free online or anywhere else, is that it is that thing that you said, which is whether you're taking a photograph of your work or whether you're actually creating the work, there's confidence in what you're doing because the structure is solid. It's like having your house have a good, strong foundation and knowing that the wiring is done right and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, having recently renovated a house, I can tell you, it's not fun that half your budget goes to stuff that you never see that's inside the walls because you'd really like it to go on all the pretty stuff, right? But I think that's so interesting. Yeah. That you said that are really standing out for me are. Well, first of all, like why would if the information is out there and you book, why would you pay a teacher and do a structured class? And I would say it's worth every penny. It doesn't matter how much it costs, because almost no one that I know of, at least maybe I'm just talking about myself here because I buy so many books and I never. I need the structure of a class in order to progress my skills. And even better, I need the structure type of class that you're talking about, which is like, we meet regularly at this time, have assignments. So that's the other thing I wanted to mention. You mentioned assignments. When it comes to design, in my opinion, the way you learn it is through exercises. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. You oh, are yeah. doing design exercises and it is incredible what happens with your mind and your brain and how you approach art when you've done basic design exercises. So it sounds like that would be an amazing, amazing thing for people to invest in is a real design experience. Yeah, I will say this, which is the I've been very happy. The reviews from students coming out of the class have all been, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. You know, this is the best class I've ever taken. I feel like I learned so much. I, you know, everything about my art has changed, all that kind of great stuff. That's so good to hear. But more than that, I, I can say that 
having taught every time I teach the class, I feel like I take the class too, because every time I do these exercises with the students and help them, I realize how far I'm coming and that my knowledge is becoming even more sophisticated and even more nuanced. So I can tell you that you can teach an old dog new tricks and that no matter where you are in your career, you know, you really can learn an enormous amount and change a lot of things, you know what I mean, very quickly. If you, It's like getting the keys, you know, to the castle. I always tell people, I want you to be able to recreate work that you love every single time if you understand how it was created and I'm not talking about like the put paint then you know glue a piece of paper then you know make a mark I'm talking about if you actually understand the structure of the work not the steps of the work then you'll be able to create work that you love for the rest of your life and how exciting is that don't we all just want to make work that we love absolutely I could not agree more and when you're saying that I'm thinking about how there's not an end point to learning about design. It's not like, oh my gosh, I think my design is so good and I'm done learning. That's not it at all. Every day, I'm, the structure yeah. is there. But I can totally see what you're saying, how even you teaching the class, it's just, it, it, you can get better and better and better at design. It's well, not something that ends. Yeah. And you're a bookbinder, so you know this too, which is like you can teach people the structure of a book, but then a hundred people can make a hundred different looking books using that structure because they bring their own personal style and panache and change things up and use slightly different materials and make it work. But the structure of the book is the same every single time. And I know that in my own bookbinding journey, like the books I made five years ago are not as good as the books I made now, even though they're using the same structure because my stitches have gotten better. I understand better how much tension things need. I, you you know, can figure out how to wrap the spine more smoothly than I used to. And, and so I think like that is part of the journey continually of learning. And it's the exciting part of learning. You're not ever done. It's a continual evolution. And the idea that I will never run out of things to learn is so dramatically exciting to me because I just am on a hunt, I guess I would say for, I want new knowledge all the time. I love it. I love it. I think we were separated at birth. <laughs> I do have that feeling. I just have an insatiable, insatiable desire to learn new things. And I never know what is going to like pique my interest. It's not always art. It could be politics. Right now I'm very, very into learning about certain certain history and certain politics but anyway okay I really asked you to be on this podcast because I did have a specific thing that I wanted to talk about and that was how motherhood change your relationship to your art practice um so for lack of a better way of putting it, it forced me to cut the bullshit um, because time became so precious. So precious. And so there is no meandering, wandering, maybe I'll do this or I sort of don't, I'm not feeling inspired. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like, no, this, this is the baby's nap. Go. And that is, you know, a different way of looking at it. I think it has um, also made me 
a part of when I say like the bullshit, it's like my own internal stuff about like, you know, not necessarily getting stuff done and blah, blah, blah. But it's also like, I just care less in some ways about, um, fitting into certain spaces because I see, uh, his level of curiosity and his level of joy and his level of excitement about things. And I, and I want to feel that way every day about what I do, you know? And so I just feel like it has opened me up and freed me in a lot of ways to be more of myself, which sounds like a funny thing when you have less time. But I, I think I just don't have, uh, I also, I think I'm so tired sometimes. I don't have, you actually need to be fairly awake in order to put like a veneer of something else over your natural personality, you know? And so I just wow. I don't have that filter anymore. <laughs> I don't have that filter. Not, that is not what I expected. And that is so <laughs> beautiful. What did you I, expect? I don't know. I thought you were going to talk about the time issue. Cause I yeah. think that even though I, I've been a parent for 21 years, I don't think I, I, I think I'm still mourning. Like I'm, I'm in mourning my own freedom of how I spend my time. Um, but what I said, I think at least for me, because I've also experienced it recently. Some more like a bubble. Mm. Well, I think with the pandemic, right, you know, you're forced on top of everybody. And so for me, because so my son was born just a few months before the pandemic started. And so, you know, what that means is that since he's also my only child, my entire idea of motherhood is wrapped up in being inside the walls of this house all the time with this baby nonstop. And so I can't quite in my mind <laughs> separate the pandemic from motherhood. They seem like the same sort of claustrophobic thing in some ways. And so it is possible that, you know, when you live on top of people as we have in the pandemic and you don't have the separation or the ability to, you know, get out and stuff that you just have to be more of yourself. And that's part of what has happened to me. So I, I think years from now, when I tell people that I was born in the 1900s and in the twenties, you know, you had to walk around with a mask. I will also talk about, you know, how, uh, how motherhood was both claustrophobic and freeing at the same time in the ways that I think the pandemic has been too. Wow. A lot to think about. I was, <laughs> I was, when you mentioned it, I was thinking about the rise of basically the the rise I don't even know how to how to put this but the rise of the anti-dieting on social mm. media and they're like never I'm 50 years old never in my lifetime until the last couple of years has there ever been an outcry that diet culture is horrible mm -hmm. and that has been transformative for me on so many levels and when you said like that you are more yourself now 
and less trying to fit in with some external idea of what you should be. Like that's where my mind goes. Mm. And I didn't I didn't know if if somehow motherhood because that was kind of the context in which it came out yeah. was somehow but the pandemic absolutely like I stopped coloring my hair and I don't think I'll ever go back. I stopped yeah. totally because of the pandemic because I wasn't going in a salon and it's another like shackle that I'm shedding. Yeah. I, I think there's something there have been so many terrible things about the pandemic, but one of the silver linings is that it has forced or allowed, however you want to look at it, um, people to think about what they really care about, what what actually really matters, and how often in our lives are we given that luxury? I mean, I've never had it. I stopped getting manicures and pedicures, which mm-hmm. I know you're still getting manicures because I see your hands on Instagram. <laughs> and I- I think like I could never go out in public without like with open toed shoes without a pedicure like that would be a crime and I never my hands on a camera without a manicure and I've done all of those things and I live to tell about it and now I'm like why would I spend the time my precious time getting manicures and pedicures when I could be making art well so this is how I feel about email I am legendarily terrible at email. At the moment, I have something like 5,000 unread emails. And in fact, my friends know, you should know that you, when you wanted me to do this podcast, you hit me up on Instagram, which is a better place for me to actually respond to something. But like, <laughs> my friends often will text me and be like, I sent you an email two days ago. Please read it. Um, I'm just terrible at email, but I have made the decision that I'm terrible because I choose to be terrible at it. Because I think if I have this time, do I want to answer your email? Or do I want to do something I want to do? And it's not a great way to run a business. I wouldn't recommend it to other people. Um, But it alleviates for me, it's like, it's like my equivalent of going outside without a bra. I just don't want to do it. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to answer the email. And it, it, it takes a lot of, makes me just feel more free about my life that I'm not, you know, having to constantly be in there and dealing with stuff. And there are a lot of emails. I'm sure you get a lot of emails. I do. I think we all do nowadays, right? Both, you know, emails from people who need stuff and emails from people who want stuff and emails from people sending you stuff and all that kind of stuff. It's the major way of communication. And I think it, um, you know, they used to say this thing, maybe they still say it, you are what you eat. But I also think you are what you um, sort of do all day. And I, if I consume email, if I consume other people's thoughts, if I consume other people's worries, fears, you know, anger, whatever it is, then that becomes part of who I am that day. And it doesn't make me a very pleasant person most of the time. So I try to think about what I'm sort of intellectually consuming and make sure that I have, uh, you know, artistic intellectual dessert every day, which really for me is being able to make something with my hands. It's a beautiful thing. All right, Julie, I think we have interesting topics and I'm sure, sure you want to get some rest now. <laughs> 
This was great. It's always fun to talk to you. I think we're very much on the same page about so many things. Of talking to you. And thank you so, so much. So, so much for sharing. It was my pleasure. Your beautiful wisdom. All right, Julie. I'm sure we could go on all night, but. But somebody has to go to bed. It's true. (laughs) Both of us. Enjoy the rest. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye, Julie. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Show Up or Shut Up. If you've made some art or craft while you listened, take a photo of it, post it to Instagram, and tag me at willa.wanders so we can see what you are up to. And if you feel like what we've talked about here spoke to you, press that subscribe button so that you're the first to know about all of the new Show Up or Shut Up episodes. Have a wonderful day and go make something.